Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is Steve, and welcome to the London Marathon Preview Edition of the Milestone Pursuit podcast. So here we are in the week leading up to the 40th race of the London Marathon. Slightly unique event and unique circumstances, which not to talk about too much, I'll to say that there are 45,000 people who've signed up to run the virtual race, looking to complete 26.2 miles on the day, on the 4th of October get their t-shirt and medal and I think that's going to be fun I think there's going to be lots of social media buzz around that but the real race is taking place in St James's Park along Birdcage Walk down the Mall. 20 laps of a very fast course for some of the best athletes in the world and in Britain so in this episode we are talking to Josh Griffiths and Natasha Cockrum, who are both competing, and we talked to them about how they're, how they're feeling about the race. Of course, I spoke to them last week, so these recordings are a few days old, and things change a little bit as you get closer to a race. But it's interesting to get their perspectives at that time anyway. I'll let those interviews speak for themselves in those chats, they're not really interviews, they're more chats, in those chats I talk to them both about the races that they are in, the, the race for Olympic qualifying times, that I thought was set up if we were just reminding ourselves, or me reminding you really, if you didn't know, or if you did know and you've forgotten, of why we do what we do at the Milestone Pursuit and helping to support some of the elite British athletes. So we should in context, we provide a little financial support, some sponsorship for Charlotte Perdue, who's not running since she's already got the Olympic qualifying time. For Josh Griffiths and for Natasha Cockrum. And they're all Olympic quality athletes all trying to get themselves into that position and as such they provide inspiration and aspiration for others and that's what sits at the heart of why we provide that sponsorship it's not very much they're not going to make massive livings out of our support, but I know it makes a difference to them. But why do we do it? So the reason we do it, and we've been doing it since 2017, is that at that point, British marathon running has been in the doldrums a little bit, 
and the performances that we were seeing from athletes weren't really any better in time and they were considerably worse in relatively relativity against global standards than they were in the 70s and 80s. So in the 70s and 80s, particularly on the men's side, women's marathon running was still quite a new thing back then. But on the men's side, we had world record holders, the Olympic medalists, Steve Jones and Charlie Spedding. We routinely had winners of the London Marathon. Those two, plus Mike Grattan and Hugh Jones. But since, since then, through the 90s and in the early part of this century, and the women, you've had Paula Radcliffe and Liz McColgan doing really well globally, and Paula Radcliffe up until recently was a world record holder, of course, for the women. But on the men's side, until Mo Farah came and started competing at the marathon with nobody who was able to compete on the global stage, nor were the times any quicker than perhaps Ron Hill ran in 1972. So standards have not, at that point, have not been pushing forwards. And I think it's important that we have people at the top of our sport in marathon running who we can look up to. Because I think it works all the way down the chain. Because the way that our brains are tuned is we look at we all look ahead of us in whatever sphere of life that is and we always think how can we get better at what we do and if there are people at the top who are getting better themselves and competing hard doing well both in terms of time performance and in global standing it gives us hope it gives us aspiration and we push on down below. So if you're a guy and you're running 220 and you see other people running 215, you think, oh, 215 is possible. I'll give it a go. And if you're a 230, sorry, and you see someone running 220, you think, that's possible, I'll give it a go. And it goes all the way down to park run or even couch to 5k. Each person can do it, so so can I. So I think the responsibility on those at the top, although it's not their responsibility to worry about it, but they do act as role models further down the chain. All the way down the chain. And and then you get into also why the standards not develop and for me there's two reasons one is the competition so if people aren't being pushed it gets hard and also within a country to get selected for olympics and world games you're not being pushed you don't necessarily need to push your own standard you just need to do what you need to do to qualify when you know that you're never going to win a an Olympic marathon or even a major marathon because all the Kenyans and Ethiopians are taking everything home running crazy fast times then it's easy to see why standards don't necessarily improve 
that's one thing. And the, the second thing I think is it's about money. So if you add those things together, you've got those people who are competing hard, training ever so hard to try and get themselves into races. They push their bodies to extremes. They don't get close to winning big races and the prize money that comes with that. They don't get close to winning medals, which brings with it funding from British Athletics or Sport England, the National Lottery, which is all based on those people with potential to win medals. You have all that. So they train really hard. They don't really get endorsements either. Most of them don't get, even get shoe contracts. And so they can't actually afford to be professional marathon runners. So they have to work. And when they work in the modern age, it's much harder for them to train. Twice, running twice a day, 120 miles a week, plus gym work, plus good recovery strategies. It's really tough. So what we try and do is just help them a little bit with that. Funnily enough, since 2017, things have really improved and we're not taking any credit for it at all. Standards have improved massively. There's a big technology factor in that, which is the development of carbon-plated shoe technology by Nike and now by others. It's made a big difference. But more importantly, there is now way more competition. They are all pushing themselves on. Four women have already qualified for the Olympics. They're not selected, but they've qualified. They have the qualifying time. And there's only three slots available. So those four, plus any others that run it this weekend, are all competing with each other to run as fast as they can to be selected for the Olympics next summer. And it's similar with the men. Not quite to the same degree. But there's a whole bunch of guys who are now capable of running at or close to the Olympic qualifying time. All pushing each other on. And it's fantastic to see. So, that's why we do what we do. That's why we speak to Josh, speak to Natasha. That's why we're friends with Charlotte. So the next part of this is more from them about how they see their races and their prospects in their races this weekend. Hope you enjoy it. We'll go straight into that. Okay, so I'm joined now by Josh Griffiths, who is uh, one of the British elite men who's running at the London Marathon uh, next week or this week depending on when this goes out we're recording this on the friday the 25th of september the race is on october the 4th so in just 10 days time and we're going to talk about a few bits and pieces but about the way josh is prepared and what he's looking forward to in the race itself um, but first of all josh uh, how are you doing how are you feeling hi steve yeah i'm really good thanks but uh it's not been a normal year but no i feel as good as i could i think yeah, I mean, it's been a really strange year for everybody, um, but not least elite athletes, because normally you would get the opportunity to race several times throughout the year at several different distances. And you yourself like to run road 10Ks, half marathons, and you know, marathon is probably the distance you favour out of all of those. Um, but obviously there's been no racing. 
and you know the cancellation of London in the spring and then speculation about what would happen in the autumn must have been difficult it's been difficult for everybody but it must have been especially difficult for you so how have you coped with that yeah it's, it's definitely been a challenge like I feel like I've been training for the London Marathon since November 2019 mm. I did Toronto last um, October after that I knew I was going to do April in uh, London in April so I was just building up for that I did a couple of 10ks in December then moved into a half marathon block run uh, personal best in Barcelona and then another decent time in big half and I was looking forward to London I think I had seven weeks to go at that point mm. and then the whole world kind of got turned upside down everything got cancelled as everyone knows and yeah then it was kind of a time to reset didn't know if I was gonna race again this year or whether I'll be racing again in a couple of months so obviously I had to back off from where I was in March because I wasn't building up for an April marathon anymore so I never actually stopped running I ran every day but I obviously backed off the intensity um, just taking over because going out for a run was one of the only things you could do at that point as well so yeah I think that kept me mentally happy just going out for a run um, and then by the time it got to about May I had to start to think about then okay, am I going to race again in the autumn? Because London hadn't, had to think had been rearranged at that point, but there was still a lot of uncertainty about it. So, yeah, it was just building up towards what I hoped would be London Marathon in October. And as time went on, then I found out that, you know, yes, I was going to be racing, but it was elite only on this different course with all these different rules. But... To be honest, I'm just grateful I have the chance to race because I know a lot of people don't. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's been really difficult for everybody, as I said uh, at the beginning, because yeah. the uncertainty over whether to race or not and the build-up and then the letting down and all that kind of stuff people have struggled with. But for you in particular, I mean, that is really hard because you're at the, such at the sharp end of performance. You've got to get yourself ready. Like you say, the big half was a, was a, a brilliant event, and it is a brilliant event, but it really did feel like it was the end um, of something we all sort of knew it was coming and we didn't quite know what was going to happen right at the beginning of March wasn't it and it's like we know something's not quite right in the world but we don't know what impact it's going to have then London gets cancelled but the elite race was still on at that point wasn't it? they're still saying they were going to yeah. hold the because um, uh, the Olympic qualifying it was yeah, Olympic trials right. basically uh, and then it's like well the Olympics are, are they even going to go ahead and like everything yeah. kept changing and that must have been incredibly hard to to think about for you to be, or do I keep training? Do I keep pushing or do I pull back? And you obviously made the decision to pull back as soon as the Olympic trial race got canceled, I guess. Yeah. As soon as I had no marathon to race, it was, I knew it wasn't beneficial for me to keep training because I'd eventually have to build up again. So the sooner I backed off, the sooner I could recover and then start to prepare for wherever was going to come next. Really. There was yeah. nothing to gain from continuing to run, really hard and a lot of miles every single week so yeah it was just a chance to kind of refocus and obviously at that point as well nobody knew what was going to happen with anything really like lockdown and restrictions like I think there was a, a, a short period of time where I was meant to have an Olympic trial to train for where they told us we could only go up leave the house for one hour a day yeah it was very difficult and challenging um mentally as well 
and it hasn't even been easy training for London in October with a lack of track access. Normally I'd race a lot in the build-up, which hasn't happened this time I've raced once. So, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, but I know as well that people have got it a lot worse. And, yeah, I'm just glad I've got a race to do and, yeah, I can get on with it, really. Yeah, and I, and I think that's... that you are typically very good at controlling controllables. You know, you've, we've talked about this before, that there are loads of things that affect the way that you run and there are loads of external factors that can influence you, but you're very good at saying, actually, I'm not going to let any of those things get to me. I'm going to focus entirely on my performance and my training and what I can do and see where that leads me. And I think, you know, one of the things I've always found really interesting about you is your consistency over time. So if you go back, through your history over the marathon distance in particular, you obviously shot to prominence in 2017 with that mad, um, well, the way it's reported is that mad acceleration of, oh, look at this club runner guy who's won the British Championships in 2017, qualified for the, to run for GB in the World Championships of that year. So your second ever marathon was a World Championship race in London, um, yeah. in which you performed really well at, considering it was hot and considering it was a championship race. Then your third marathon is the Commonwealth Games for Wales in Australia, where it was super hot the year, you know, the race that Callum Hawkins collapsed um, with victory in sight. And then since then, and it's been really interesting because that, I think, you look at it, go the strength you build from that helped you become really consistent in the next three races. So you ran Dublin in 2018. That's right, isn't it? The autumn of 2018, yep. 216. London the following spring and a new PB of 214 and a bit. And then Toronto last year, and then you've improved your half marathon time, and you so you've been consistent through all of, all, that, all of that. No injury, you haven't missed a race, um, and that's showing, isn't it? So your half marathon now is down to sixty-three and a bit minutes, um, and that's in my mind that's through the consistency you've shown through all your training, which hopefully is going to pay dividends as you go into this race. Yeah, I really hope so. Like. You know, I can draw a lot back from those championship races I did in London and Australia as well. Like, they are obviously elite-only fields on, you know, unique courses as well, especially the one in London, it was laps. So, mm. you know, I can draw on things like that to help me, to help prepare me for October as well, because I have kind of been in that scenario before where a lot of people wouldn't have in a road environment. Some people would have on the track, but, yeah, you know, you've, I think you've just kind of got, got to kind of draw on things that, can help you in the race and then obviously the things you can't control I think you've just got to forget about because you can worry about it as much as you want it's not going to change whatever happens it's going to happen yeah exactly and and you've done that as I say you've done that that brilliantly well so if you go back you know into um into the early part of lockdown and I suppose when when did London announce that it was going to be October the 4th and the elite race was going to go on it was sort of in the middle of the summer wasn't it it's of July August time uh, yeah, I believe I found out in around July time. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was pretty confident that I would have a race. During the summer, I was pretty confident I'd have a marathon to do somewhere in October. So I was, you know, preparing now and training properly for that because um, I needed to. I couldn't just run easy for forever. So, yeah, I was building up for something, you know, I was going to always wait for confirmation as to what that was, but... Yeah, I was preparing for an October marathon from, I'd say, around June time. Yeah. Um, hoping that was going to be London, obviously. Um, and as it turns out, it is going to be London. But at that time, I didn't know it was going to be as it is now. 
But yeah, like since then, that's been pretty much my sole focus because I haven't had any other races apart from one, which I did in Ireland a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah. yeah, so let's talk about that because that, I mean, that you performed really well in that race. That was the Antrim half marathon, coastal half marathon, which yeah. is an out and back course, wasn't it? Yeah, you do one small, small loop of the town and then it's out and back along the coast road. Yeah. yeah, so in Ireland, out and back course is going to be if it's going to be windy along the coast, a little bit undulating as well. Um, to be honest, it was pretty flat, like it was probably as good as you could hope for. But right. yeah, there was a slight breeze in places. However, I did have a good group to run with, which always helps. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the race went as well as I could have hoped, really, given the whole build up and stuff. Because before that, I hadn't raced since Big Half on the 1st of March. So yeah, it was a bit of an unknown going into it. I knew training had gone well, but I hadn't raced in six months, which for me is like, a ridiculously long time so yeah yeah it was really really nice for that to go well and a big confidence boost going into London for sure yeah definitely and then prior to that you'd spent a bit of time in Font Rameau in which is in um for those who don't know is a is a is a mountain resort in the Pyrenees um so an altitude camp for you how long were you there um I stayed in Font for three and a half weeks I believe right okay so that that would have had a big impact as well yeah, like a couple of my friends and I decided to go out. You know, it was it's an amazing place to train if anyone gets a chance to go. Great trails everywhere and the track is perfect too. But it was also just kind of nice to get away from the UK for a bit. Um, yeah. You know, just mentally kind of refresh, be with friends and stuff because after the lockdown, we hadn't really seen anyone for a long time. So, yeah, it was it was a big change, I think. Um, my training kind of went up a notch when I got out there and I just felt a lot better about myself as well just being in good company and yeah being able to focus on training yeah so a more normal life for you effectively yeah it, it did feel a lot more normal in the UK at the time France was a bit ahead they'd progressed a bit you know um, mm. come out of lockdown we could sit in bars and cafes, which you couldn't do in the UK at that time. And yeah, it was a nice place to be and a brilliant place to train. Like I got three and a half weeks of really good work there, for sure. And you, you paid for that trip yourself, did you? That was you and who else went with you? Uh, yeah, there was a fairly big group of us event in the end, um, but kind of all organised it ourselves just to be out there at the same time as each other. Um, so yeah, it was self-funded. Welsh Athletics contributed a small amount, but yeah, we were going to go regardless. Because yeah, mm. yeah, a good opportunity, like you say, to get away, do something different, work together, which is a big yeah. factor. Because presumably, up until that point, you trained almost entirely alone. Yeah, because I'm self-coached and trained by my own anyway. Like I don't link within with anyone anyway. I met up with um, Steeplechaser John Hopkins a couple of times to do a couple of just time trials between the two of us nice to have some sort of competitive element but yeah aside from that I'd been running on my own a lot so it was nice to get out there get some group training and linked in with a few different people as well which really helped and it was really nice as well so yeah it was it was a really good block and kind of a turning point when things got more serious for London as well yeah exactly so there's a proper marker in the sand that this this is we're now building up properly we're doing something different we're getting ourselves ready 
for a race as opposed to what you've been doing previously, which is coming down off the training of the, for the spring marathon that never happened and trying to cope emotionally with lockdown and running on your own and what the future held and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that was, yeah, it was like a turning point in a number of ways. Like my training definitely went up a notch in terms of intensity and specificity, I would say. But it was also kind of like, okay, we're no longer in lockdown. I'm not stuck in my house anymore. I can get out. I can do a few more things. And mentally, it was kind of a nice release as well to just kind of live normally for a bit. (laughs) And then by by the time I go back to the UK things were a little bit better here as well because we'd kind of caught up to where France was at the beginning when I went out. So, yeah, it was a lot nicer when I came home as well. Then. And I kind of continued that training then through to the Antrim Coast half and London in a couple of weeks. Yeah, perfect. And the other thing that happened in Fontenay was you you were running with Mo Farah, weren't you? Yeah, that was a bit of a coincidence and cool moment. Um, yeah, um we always go down to the, this big lake on a Sunday morning for a long run. 10 o'clock is pretty standard out there. So it's meeting uh, Ben Connor, Zach Seddon, and a few of them anyway. And then uh, Mo texts Zach to see if anyone was running. So he said, yeah, there's a few guys going. So he turned up as well with Bashir Abdi um, and Mo Ali. And yeah, we just did a long run with them. Nice. Was he was he chatty? Did he get involved in any of the banter, or did he, he just run, or did you just run? Yeah, no, very much so. He's just a normal guy, Arsenal yeah, sure. fan. Oh, helps. well, you've got that in common then. But no, yeah, it was a, it was a great group to run with for sure. Cool. So that that must have helped with the whole experience as well. So that's type of, you know, not just because he's Mo Farah and he's obviously a celebrity in our sport, but more because he's a high quality athlete for someone for you to train with. And you being, you know, I hope quality athlete yourself, top 10 in the UK, there aren't that many people who you can aspire to in the way that Mo Farah would provide that aspiration for you. Yeah, in terms of like company for a long run, it's not bad to have Mo Farah and then Bashir Abdi on a long run with you, is it? Like they're capable of running along a lot faster than me. So yeah, I could kind of just sit in behind them, you know, which for training was amazing because on a long run, usually on, on my own or it would have just been with Ben. Um, and then yeah it's not every day you get to run with Olympic champion either so yeah it, it was pretty cool in a number of ways yeah brilliant very good and of course he is going to be pacing uh, eight, some of the groups for the London Marathon which is an interesting turn of events who would have ever thought Mo Farah would be a pacer yeah I know he's definitely wouldn't have predicted this a year ago I don't think but no exactly yeah um, yeah he's great that if you can help out then that's amazing and that i mean that's the really interesting thing about the communication around that is that a lot of cynics would say oh he's doing it because he's going to get paid a wedge of cash uh and he does just doesn't want to run the marathon anymore for various reasons I and mean, kipchoge beating him several times being one of them but actually when you read everything that is said and what you've just said you go no he's doing it to help he's doing it to help british runners yeah, like if he's getting paid, then he should get paid. All the other paces will get paid. So yeah. that's none of their business. It's just none of mine. Like if he's going to help some people try and run a qualifying time, then fair play to him. He doesn't yeah. have to do that. No, he doesn't have to do that at all. And I, th- I think it's really interesting. And he will, you know, he said, so the plan is that he's going to run the the Olympic qualifying time. I, I don't know how long for, I guess, past halfway. But um uh, that should that for him is going to be a training run, isn't it? It's going to be really yeah. comfy because it's 
you know, he can run a 60 minute half marathon and he's going to be having to go in through in 66 or just under 66 minutes to be on the schedule for time. So that's a 10% pace difference and he should be, he should be cruising. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah, and in terms of a pacemaker, like to have some someone of that caliber pace in like a 65, 66 minute group, it's amazing because he's going to be so relaxed. The pace is going to be easy, so it should be even. All you have to do is run behind him. Hmm. You don't have to worry about anything, and he should take you to at least halfway. So, yeah, and by that point, you're in a rhythm, and if someone drops out, it's not so bad because you're already well into the race, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. And with the race itself being a lapped course, and obviously it's about 20 laps of St. James's Park, which you know well, we know well, um, but 20 laps of it is a completely different beast. But if you've been paced for the first half of it, then that takes quite a lot of that repetitive pressure away um, because you haven't got to think about you know a mental strategy for most of the race because you're going to just sit, like you say, hopefully sit in that group and see what happens. Yeah, I think it's 19.6 laps or something, but it's still 26.2 miles. Like, wherever you do that, 26 miles is 26 miles. Like, it's the same distance. It's not going to have any elevation in it whatsoever, which is better than the normal London. I know it's pretty good anyway, but still. And yeah, to be honest, like, as an elite athlete, I think you kind of focus in a little bit more. You tend not to notice so much other stuff like often after a race someone asked me did you see this building or did you see that bridge and I'm no I didn't <laughs> notice it because you kind of just I don't know you go into a zone where you you just run so I think a lot of the laps will take off quickly maybe as you get more tired you lose a bit of focus but we're all elite athletes at the end of the day we've all trained to be there yeah I, I don't think the laps is going to be an issue no, I really don't think it is for, for for any of you, to be honest. And if anything, like you say, London typically at your level is not a fast course because there's a few tight corners, a few tight bends yeah. and a few undulations that mean that when you're right on the edge, which which you will you you are when you run the London Marathon, they're hard. You know, and particularly the last, you know, the last well, the last mile is uphill into Buckingham Palace. And prior to that you've got a few things on them on the embankment that make it more hard. It sounds stupid because it is a flat marathon and it is a fast marathon, but it's not the fastest for that reason. But it could be, couldn't it? It could be this time. Yeah, I believe this is probably one of the fastest courses that have ever been made. Mm. Um, there's no U-turns, there's no sharp corners, there's no hills. You know, you can't control the weather. Whatever happens will happen. But yeah, in terms of a layout, I, I don't think it gets much faster. I mean, if you're doing it for fun, it I don't think it's going to be that fun. And if you're watching on TV, it might seem a bit boring, but from an athlete's perspective, I think it's fast. And if you're trying to run a qualifying time or a PB or whatever, this is a really good chance. Yeah, on that, on the watching on TV thing, I think that's really interesting because I think for most people, it's going to be nowhere near as interesting as the London Marathon is typically um, because it's not the big event and the big crowds and all that stuff that goes with it that, we, that everybody loves. Um, but it's a fan, it, it has the potential to be a fantastic viewing experience and hopefully it's going to be live on the BBC. Hopefully they're going to broadcast it in a way that helps us know what's going on so we can see who's doing what. Um, and hopefully they won't focus entirely on Kipchoge and Bikili. It'll obviously depend how that race plays out. Obviously, if it is the smackdown that everybody is wanting, then it'll be fantastic viewing. But if it's not, 
then hopefully they'll spend a bit of time focusing on the British guys. Um, because I think that's, there's some, obviously some other high quality athletes in there as well. But for, for us to watch all of the best Brits, pretty much apart from Callum and Dowie Griffiths, who is, is still recovering from injury, you know, it, it, you're all there. Yeah, like that is one thing with no uh, mass race and other, and like all the races on at different times. Like the women will have one hundred percent of the coverage, the men will have one hundred percent of the coverage, and so will the wheelchair athletes, which is great because that never happens. Um, and yeah, it would be nice if some of the British athletes get a bit of focus as well. Obviously, that shouldn't take away from anything that's happening at the front of the field. It'd be nice if it was a split screen or just a graphic on the side, which. I don't know, like a table or something to just to show who's where because yeah I think it would be a real good chance to showcase British running it is at a pretty good level at the moment so this is a chance to show it. whether they do I don't know but yeah there's some great Brits in the men's field and the women's field. Yeah there definitely is I mean, I've, I um, separately I've spoken to Natasha Cochran who's running in the women's race um, and she's really looking forward to it for exactly the same reason. And it's, it's as you are, and it's a really similar type of field. But they, there's a whole bunch of women, as there is a whole bunch of men, who are seeking the Olympic qualifying time, using this race as an opportunity to bank that time so that when there's a trial race in 2021, you're ready and you're, you're just, just running for position rather than having to worry about time as well, which changes the nature of it and just give yourselves the best possible chance of trying to compete in the Olympics. Assuming that the Olympics still happen, of course. Um, and I just yeah. noticed just before we started speaking, the British Athletics announced that there will be a trial race in March or April in a the venue that they haven't defined yet. They, it, it read to me like, and you, you will know this, but it read to me like they wanted to make sure everyone knew that there was going to be a trial race, but they, that was it. You know, there wasn't any yeah. more detail than that, um, which understandably they can't provide or, don't have at this moment in time yeah. but that so that's the premise is there's a whole bunch of Brits who are trying to run under the under the Olympic qualifying time so that they're set up for the trial race in the spring um, which will itself be really exciting and so it'd be great if loads of you get the Olympic trial uh, the Olympic qualifying time and my understanding is it's only Johnny Mellor that's currently got it I think that's right isn't it uh, yeah and Callum who's and, not running yeah uh, well, Callum's been pre-selected hasn't he so yeah so Johnny's got the time and then everyone else I think was planning on doing London in April, but that didn't happen. So yeah. for most of the field, this is going to be their first marathon of 2020. So, yeah. And who knows what can happen? So you've got people like Chris Thompson, who's run fast before, but not for quite a long time over the marathon distance, but he's come back to some really good half marathon forms that he'll, he'll be looking to run well. Ben Connor, who you've spoken about, your friend Ben, who's, a brilliant half marathon runner but has never run a marathon before so that's a bit of an unknown quantity and you've got uh ross millington who's another good half marathon runner but he's never run a marathon before and then a whole bunch of guys who are similar to you really who have you know who are progressing moving in the right direction um who may or may not have good days and you're not quite sure where they're at because no one's really raced properly yeah, like there's the field is brilliant in terms of British men in the field and women. Um, so yeah, like you could you could have a day where five or six people go under that time, which is you know really exciting for a fan, for sure. Um, it's going to be a competitive race. I know that 
Um, how people run, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But yeah, all I can do is focus on my own race and try and run as fast as I can. Definitely, and I, and I think on a on a higher level or a macro level, the reason that you and I are speaking is because one of the things that I've been working on and believe in is the or trying to support British marathon running to help improve the standards of it. Knowing that when we first chatted three years ago, you know the standards weren't as high as they were back in even in the 1980s, but they now are. They are now much better, and obviously there's nothing that we've done that's contributed to that. There's a whole bunch of other factors. But it makes it much more exciting. You know, in 2017, you you won the British Marathon Championships with a time of 2.14.40 something. Is that right, yeah. isn't it? Um, and that wouldn't get close to winning today. No. Um, no, and... it's great for British Marathon and it shows how far it's come along. And I think that's across the board as well. You even see like 800, 1500, like the standards now are just crazy. So compared to a few years ago, so... You know, a few years ago, if you run the time, you run the team, whereas now you have to run the time and you may have to make sure you get to up three, otherwise you won't be on the team. So, yeah, yeah for sure. And it's I think, a lot you better. know, there's in that progression, the shoe technology has made a difference, but it's not the only thing by any stretch of the imagination. It is the fact that it is now more competitive for all of you. You're all pushing yourselves on to different, to new standards because you know that, you can't run 214 and, and run for, for Britain. You know, you've got to run quicker than that to wear an international vest. Yeah, like the shoes has definitely brought everyone's times on a little bit, but you've just got more guys who are of really good ability trying the marathon and trying the half, which, you know, wasn't happening a few years ago. And I think once you see one or two people run fast, it makes a lot of other people believe it's possible. You know, some people may have used to aim for 214 whereas now they're aiming for 212 to 11 so you know the shoes help a little bit but you've got to put the miles and you've got to put the training in and you've got to commit to the marathon because if you don't it doesn't matter what you wear on your feet no exactly and you you, you can't basically you can't cheat the marathon the one thing i always remember it was peter bromko who tweeted this at some point um and it was uh and it, it always makes me laugh it was now, oh, I've discovered a, I've discovered a hack for running a 2.15 or 2.20, I can't remember what number it was, but a fast marathon. And it's you have to run 80 miles a week for 10 years. And that's the point with marathon running, isn't it? You don't get rewards overnight. You have to put the graft in over a longer period of time. And shoe technology will help. And if the, le if the playing field is level, then the playing field is level. I guess there's arguments that at times some athletes have had advantage over others because of the nature of the shoe manufacturer they might have had a contract with. But now the playing field is much more level. It's game on, isn't it? It's game on for everybody to have a really good race. Yeah, for sure. That, that's what you want. You just want an even playing field. You have to accept that technology is going to evolve, evolve over time. Like We don't still run on cinder tracks. We don't play football with those big leather ones. You know, technology mm. does move on. But as long as it's the same for everyone, then, you know, play on. Like. You know, I think in April 2019, that night shoe was out and nothing else was anywhere near it. And that showed in the results for pretty much every major marathon in the year. But, you know, now you've got a number of brands who are, you know, producing very similar shoes. And, yeah, it seems like it's going to be an even playing field and let the best man or woman win. Yeah, and that which makes it really exciting because then it's about racing, isn't it? It's not, it's not actually... There's a bit of time trialing going on because everybody wants a qualifying time, but it is also a race. You know, you are going to be taking each other on. 
Yeah, as I referred to earlier, like it's not just a case of running the time anymore. You've actually got to mm. beat some of the other guys when you do it as well. So, you know, you might run to 11, 15, but be the fifth Brit, which is not going to help you too much if you want mm. to run in the Olympics. So, yeah, you know, you've got to make sure you've got the time. Results are going to help if you can get one up on someone here too. Yeah, quite. So it's Friday now and the race is a week on Monday, uh, Sunday, sorry. What's happening between now and then? Not too much, to be honest. Like the, you know, the majority of the training is done. I did my last long run this morning. Uh, nothing too crazy. Um, I'll have one more harder session on Sunday and then I've got less than a week to go. So taking over mileage wise, nothing long, nothing too hard. Just getting to Sunday feeling good and ready to go. And you, uh, as part of the biosecure bubble that they've, they're creating, you have to come to London, somewhere near London anyway, stay in a hotel with the other athletes, uh, be tested, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so before I go to London, I have to have a negative COVID test um, before I even travel. Um, so as long as that comes back negative, I can travel to this hotel. Um, once I get there, I will have another COVID test. Um, then we've all got separate rooms and stuff. So I guess we kind of be locked away until we get the result. Um, and as long as that's negative, then you're good to race. There's lots of social distancing and um, uh, procedures in place to keep people apart and keep the event as safe as possible, which is great. Um, and yeah, apart from that, I'm really looking forward to racing. Cool. Um, and, I, and just before we sign off, so obviously the race, we talked about the Brits, but we haven't talked about Kipchoge and Bikili having, a, having their own smackdown at the front of the race. Some people think they might break a world record. Who knows what condition either of them are in. Kipchoge's way more reliable historically than Bikili. So you never really know what you're gonna, gonna, going to get. Um, well, how are you feeling about that being part of that race? Because I guess you, how many times are you going to get lapped is a, is a, is a question. Yeah, um, well, it, first of all, it's an amazing it's amazing to be in that the same race as those oh, guys. Yeah. I mean, it's part of the reason why I train every day to try and run with the best in the world, not so much against them, but <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, no, it's an amazing experience to be there with those guys, and yeah, hopefully, I only get laughed once. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, once would be about right, wouldn't it? Be a bit of work, I think if you could run like 208 and still get lapped, so. Yeah, um, it's going to be, yeah, they're a different level and it'll be interesting to see who wins. Personally, I think it'll be Kipchoge, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Who knows? Who knows? Well, brilliant. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Um, and obviously, the best of luck a week on Sunday. Thanks very much. So that's Josh. And I think it was really interesting. He talked about how he struggled through lockdown with the, the way that the world changed overnight, as many of us have done, and how he built himself back up and got himself into some great shape ahead of the race next week. I also think it was uh, really interesting to hear him talk about how inspiring he found it to run with Mo Farah. Um, and I think that really plays to everything that I've said at the beginning of this episode about how we all inspire one another and it starts at the very top. So if Mo Farah can inspire Josh Griffiths, then Josh Griffiths can inspire people who are you know, trying to get to his level and the, that 
chain goes on and we all look up and look ahead of us. So that's why it's so important that we continue to improve the standards of British marathon running. And that was a really nice way of capturing it. You could sense, as I was talking to him at the time, you could sense how exciting it was for him to be running with an Olympic champion and a man of Mo Farah's um, standing in our sport. So we're now going to move on and we're going to speak to Natasha, uh, Natasha Cochran, and we will let the chat speak for itself and I'll wrap up at the end. Okay, so I've been joined now by Natasha, Natasha Cochran, uh, who is Welsh Athletics number one endurance athlete at the moment. Um, how are you, Natasha? It's, it's boiling here today. Is it hot where you are? Uh, it has been hot the last few days, but it's cooling off a little bit at the moment. Okay, but where, no, it's good to be joining you as well. And where are you? Uh, currently back home of Wales, so I just travelled back for some physio. So yeah, eight-hour round trip to get some physio, quite long, but it's worth it. Because you normally live, even though you're Welsh and you've been brought up in Wales and home is Wales, you currently live in Norfolk. Yeah, I relocated right before lockdown so I could focus on Olympic trials. Just that my partner relocated there for work, so it's more so that he could support me and I could drop some hours in work. So I've gone from working really long hours, 60-hour weeks, down to 18 and a half, just so I can focus more on the training. Wow. So yeah, that was kind of odd, relocating, going straight into lockdown. And yeah. Then, so I guess yeah. you, 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 you were living in Norfolk, just you and your partner, so the two of you, and didn't really get to meet anybody else or get to know other people at that point. Yeah, I, were, I moved there two weeks before lockdown, so not really explored anywhere or been yeah. anywhere now, other than, yeah, our new home and just basically out on runs. That's the only times that we've been out. So we've explored about 20 miles from the house. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and, where, and, and what is it you do or what, when you work in the 60-hour weeks? What were you doing then? Uh, so I was working for Welsh Government with medicine shortages. So right before I moved, obviously, with COVID. And at the time, it was when all the floods were happening, which was, I think, a few of the storage factories for the medicines got destroyed. So, yeah, work was getting quite crazy right before I left. So it was the right decision. I miss it a lot, but it was the right time to focus on just the run-in. Yeah, cool. And you uh, you were due to do London when it was scheduled in April, off the, yeah, off the elite yeah. start then, yeah. Okay, cool. So um, just for everyone else's benefit, you're running the Elite London race in two, 10 days time, I suppose, a bit more yeah, than 10 days yeah, time, 10 4th, days. 4th of October. Um, and you're kind of been preparing for that. We'll talk about your prep in a little while, but I think because um, you're probably not that well known in running circles. No, I don't, no disrespect to yourself. You're obviously very fast. Um, your fastest marathon is 2.30.49 at Dublin yeah. uh, about 12 months ago. Um, yeah. And you obviously, you know, I'm guessing you want to get quicker than that, like everybody in, on the planet. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Um, so I think it's probably worth talking a little bit about your history as an athlete and where you've come from and what you're looking to achieve now. Uh, so I started out as a fairly promising junior and just running 3K, 5K on the track. Uh, I think when I was 17, then I moved to America on an athletic scholarship and it kind of went a bit downhill from there it didn't really suit me I think I was just too young at the time to go out there right. I wasn't quite ready to make that jump so I was going from 40 mile weeks up to 100 mile weeks just wasn't oh. quite ready and where was that but you went, I, um, went? A University of Tulsa Oklahoma so I did right. four years sports scholarship there and then I did an extra year more focusing on academics I had a quite serious injury my final year when I was out there so that resulted in surgery 
and yeah quite a long time out I think at the time I wasn't sure if I was actually going to carry on running I'd almost given up but not quite so I was just running kind of to keep fit after the surgery and then I finally got back in because local club here just persuaded me to join again and then I took up mountain running but just myself like I wasn't really coached by anyone and then I ran I think I ran a mountain race out in I think it was Italy and then the following week went out to Dublin without even training for the marathon and ran there and that's where I ran the 249 I think it was and that's how I got into marathon running so okay so is that that Dublin race what year was that I think that was 2017, I think. Yeah, okay. So that, that effectively got you back into the groove thinking, actually, I can be quite good at this. Yeah, so I, ran, I was doing the mountain races just for fun. There was no mm. pressure because obviously times don't matter in the mountain races. So Dublin Marathon was my first like really timed race where people could really compare to other people and other athletes, other races. And... I mean, 2.49, looking back now, that's not fast at all, but it was decent. It's still a decent mm. time, mm. and especially without actually training for the marathon. I didn't have any gels or anything. I just went out there and ran. Yeah. And, yeah, so 2.49 at the time seemed like a decent time, which kind of made me think, like, yeah, the marathon is for me, which, yeah, kind of went from there. <laughs> okay, cool. So that's really interesting. So, And I think lots of people go on that journey, don't they, where they show promise as a youngster, they take it really seriously at university, wherever they are, whether it's UK or whether like you, you get, end up with a scholarship in the US, which is fantastic, brilliant opportunity to learn loads of new things about life and about running, but overdo it at that point and then end up injuring themselves, getting really despondent about it. Um, and it makes it hard then to find the energy and the drive to come back. And some people just leave it sometimes forever. Some people leave it until they're in their 30s and 40s before they rediscover the joy of running and that they've still got a physiology that supports running um but you discovered rediscovered it quite soon after after that sort of difficult period yeah i think once i was back running it took me probably a good year and a bit to get back and then even then for the next year i was a bit unsure of like how much my knee could actually take because before the surgery i got told that i'd never be able to run again so then once i did run again after the surgery i was a bit like will my knee actually take the training required for a marathon? Mm. So it was a bit, I was a bit, I guess, more nervous on a mental side of things, always having my knee in the back of my mind, like, will it go again? Like, I could still remember the pain of when it first happened. Yeah. So I think that kind of held me back a little bit. But once I realised that it was fully healed and I was able to manage the training, it's just kind of got better from there. And then I joined my coach and... Yeah, it's just kind of been all uphill then, so what, minus the odd. Yeah, with the odd niggle and injury that we pick up along the way. Yeah, which yeah. is inevitable, really. Yeah, it's part of marathon running, isn't it? Um, exactly, yeah. So, so talk to me about that knee injury. So what, what happened and, and who was it that told you that you'd never run again? Um, so I did four years in America. It was my last, so it was my fourth year when I started to get a few niggles, but just wanted to get through the last season for the university. Um, I think for my last race, I had a cortisol shot just so I could get through it, which wasn't ideal because it masked the pain and mm. basically made it worse. And then I came home and I was on a run. I think I was about a mile in and the pain, it just got so bad. It was like someone like shot me back in the back of the knee. So I hobbled home and yeah, I saw doctors here and they pretty much said they didn't know what it was. Like nothing came up on MRIs. 
them, but they said, there's nothing we can do for you. You won't be able to run again, even though I didn't actually get a diagnosis. So I think that's why I went further and was like, well, I need, at least need an answer. Like why, what's wrong with it? So yeah, the doctors back here were the ones that said I wouldn't actually run again. And then I went back to America for a fifth year to focus on academics as I wasn't able to run. But I found a surgeon actually in Oklahoma, which who he looked at it. We didn't know what was wrong with it, but he was willing to do the surgery just to give it a go. So yeah, we went in with keyhole, but ended up in open surgery. And yeah, since then I've been fine. So amazing. Yeah. And that I mean that's really interesting because obviously the the healthcare you had in the states and you saw a surgeon. I mean that would have cost money, somebody money. And but here you had the yeah. same same problem. So it was GPs who said that you won't run again without actually yeah, diagnosing. Then, yeah. Yeah, so it was GPs here. I didn't have any support from Welsh Athletics at the time, so I couldn't see any like specific sports doctors that I'd perhaps be able to see now from their support. So it was just who I could see here, which was the GPs who weren't really willing yeah. to investigate further. Yeah, but yeah back in America, I saw the doctor and then I think I saw him on the Tuesday and then was on the surgery table by the Thursday. And that so. was all via the university, was it? Uh, I had insurance via the university so that covered most of it i think i paid about 10 percent which when surgery costs that much it wasn't an awful it wasn't terrible it was worth it so yeah yeah and it's amazing isn't it so you you could easily have given up based on the information you had and also the access to the um healthcare that you might not yeah. be able to afford yourself um and that's one of the realities you face as a as a marathon runner isn't it or as a self-funded effectively marathon runner is the definitely any injury you know could be could be career-threatening and you don't necessarily have the means of which to pay for the cut the, the care that you need yeah i think it was the not knowing that made me want to search for answers to even if i had to accept that i couldn't run again i at least wanted an answer as to what was wrong and why i couldn't so I'm glad I went and searched for the answers and even going into the surgery I didn't actually know what was wrong which was tough going into it because I was thinking am I going to go into the surgery now he's going to cut me open and there's not actually anything wrong it is all in my head or something but no or, there was so and equally waking up and having no idea what's happened you know right so what, what's, yeah well that was the case I woke up not even knowing that I had open surgery because <laughs> going into it I was like I've just got keyhole that's all it is but no so when I woke up it was kind of an odd feeling but I just I still remember the first words from the surgeon he was like well I think we found it so oh brilliant that's yeah. such a relief <laughs> yeah oh, fantastic so then like you say you got back into the running and you got back into and you, you, you turned up at the Dublin Marathon ran 249 off doing some mountain running which obviously would have conditioned you quite well from a strength perspective um, and got you kind of into some some shape but then the road road running is very specific. And then at that point, uh, did you make some other changes? So you talked about your coach at that point? Yeah, so at that point, I still, I started to really focus on the marathon. That's what I wanted. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I ran Newport Marathon the following April, but that was all of, of cross training because at that time I was still having a few knee problems. So I did, I think it was six months cross training into Newport Marathon. I didn't run once. I think two weeks before I went for a run and then ran Newport Marathon. And that's where I ran the 244, I think it was. And so that was 244 just off of cross training. Wow. So I realized 
2.49 off of no marathon training, 2.44 off of just cross training. So that was kind of the point where I was like, I need to get a coach so I can do marathon specific training. So I didn't know anything about the marathon. Um, so yeah, that's when I joined Tony. Uh, I knew Tony before, but not as a, I didn't really know an awful lot about him. So yeah, that was... And so that's Tony Houchin, Houchin, how do you say his surname? Yeah, Tony Houchin, yeah. And, and he's based in the US? Yeah, so he recruited me from school to go to the university that he was coaching at at the time. Ah, gotcha. So he was coaching at Las Vegas, but last minute I turned him down to go to Tulsa, just because it was more of an education point rather than the coach point. I didn't turn him down because of him as a coach, it was more because of the university which kind of worked out anyway because he then moved to Alabama University so right. which didn't matter so we kind of have a joke that I turned him down once and then came crawling back but, <laughs> yeah I bet yeah. you liked that yeah so it was a bit when I first messaged him after Newport Marathon to ask if he'd still be open to coaching me I was a bit like oh should I be doing this but no it's worked really well he was happy to coach me so yeah cool. so, so that was in 2018 and then you ran Dublin again didn't you in that autumn yeah, and then I ran Dublin again, which is where I ran the 2.35, I think it was. Yeah. So that was my first marathon with actual marathon training, which was obviously a massive improvement Yeah. the I mean, 2.45 previously. Exactly. Well, I mean, if you've been doing running during your training block, then you would probably improve on 2.44 based on the fact that you did that purely on the cross trainer. Um, so that would have helped. So I guess he helped you craft a program that you could cope with, firstly, um, yeah get physically get through and would enable you to get faster yeah I think his training just really suits me especially at the time because I was balancing it between my full-time job which was quite demanding and I think a lot of coaches struggle with athletes that work full-time as well because they want them to be doing their training whereas Tony was very open about working around me rather than me working around him mm -hmm. so I think that really helped especially towards Dublin um, and yeah just finding a program that worked for me so it was pushing me but also making sure I was healthy at the same time um, so at the time was the most important thing sure yeah I mean you, you, you've got to get on the start line haven't you basically right that's um, almost the hardest thing yeah so. <laughs> it, it is and lots of people overlook that you go well if you're on the start line you would um, you know, uh, amateur marathon runners and recreational marathon runners go if you can get to the start line you will finish the race don't worry about yeah, finishing definitely. the race bit. It's getting to the start line that's actually the really hard bit. Um, yeah. and, and the same is true for you, isn't it? You know, because you push yourself hard in training because you're always trying to get quicker. Then yeah. getting to the start line is half the battle. Definitely. I think, yeah, a lot of marathon runners are starting to share this. So that I think too many people think that we're just robots and mm. elite runners are just always going to get to the start line. And I, that's not the case. It is. A fight for us too to get to the start line definitely I, I always say to people um that i coach that then when they got a little niggle and injury i say one of the things that they i try to provide reassurance around is that everybody pretty much of any level is carrying something most of the time there is probably a half you know maybe half a dozen races you ever do in your life where you turn up on the start line and everything is clicking you feel amazing you've got no niggles no injuries yeah, nothing definitely. You're, not, you're not carrying anything and he and our, you know, Mo Farah, for example, everyone holds up as you know our greatest endurance athlete. You know, he will be carrying stuff all the time. Yeah, um, of some I think it's hard as well because yeah, I think all of my marathons that I've done, Dublin when I ran the two thirty-five, that was actually the only marathon 
that I've gone into knowing that I didn't have any little niggles along the mm. way or didn't have anything come up. So that was actually my only marathon that I've done, I guess, fully healthy. But it's also hard as well because you have to listen to the body and not run through something too terrible. But at the same time, if you were stopping for everything, then you'd never make a start line. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is a skill of marathon running that you develop over time, I think, which is you start to learn what is something to be taken really seriously and back off on and what is something that will probably pass in a few days if you do xyz um yeah that, that takes time to learn and it's difficult yeah i think that's something i'm still learning and that's something tony's really good at because i'm not good at stopping i'm the sort of athlete that just wants to keep going mm -hmm. and a lot of people think that coaches are there to tell their athletes to keep going and keep doing more but i think Tony and I it's actually the other way around it's normally him having to tell me okay just slow down stop yeah I think so. that's exactly right um as you know I know Charlotte Purdue quite well and she uh she has exactly the same relationship with her coach whereas he's more likely to tell her to back off than to push um because yeah. he and Tony will know that your nature's is to is to keep pushing yourself until you break yeah um, because you're and I think that's the, that's how my knee surgery actually happened because the coach that I was under at the time he was very much push until because it was a four-year scholarship it's you are a disposable athlete mm. if anything and, and that is the problem with NCAA so it's kind of like push as hard as you can because at the end of the four years you're not with that coach anymore so it doesn't matter so I think when you are looking at things like that you do need to be careful about who's coaching you and who's giving you input yeah I mean that's an interesting point because that system is set up to push people to get them the very very best athletes in the states uh, and yeah. not worry about the, the kind of collateral damage that happens along the way because it's not their problem. You know, they haven't got yeah. to worry about you after four years. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so then you uh, you ran Dublin again last autumn. So you yeah. ran three years in a row. You obviously like running the Dublin Marathon. Yeah, I think, well, it's just easy. It's close. Um, it's an autumn marathon. It's easy. I've struggled to get into some of the races like Valencia this year I would have liked to have done but I couldn't get into the race as an elite my time wasn't fast enough right. I don't have an agent to help me get into races whereas um the Dublin organizers always open to inviting me because I ran that's where I ran my first marathon so I've kind of built that relationship up with the right. organizers so know that the invites are always there so I think that's the hard part when you're not the top of the elites but you are elite it's just getting into races as well yeah yes yeah, getting into races where you can compete and continue to improve yeah exactly and dublin's not the fastest of courses but i i do like it there so and then yeah, so last year you ran 230 49 which is your best time is the best time ever by a welsh woman as well yeah that's right yeah. isn't it um yeah and that's catapulted you into a new a new level isn't it yeah, definitely. So that's helped me a lot going forward. Um, got a bit of Welsh athletic support now and not fully recognised, but I do get more recognition. So hopefully it will get easier to get into some of the better races like Valencia. But yeah. yeah. And London, of course. Yeah, and London. Yeah. Um, which is always good. So the other thing that's interesting about the, the your best marathons have all been in the autumn. They've all been Dublin and they've all been in the autumn. Is there a difference for you in summer and winter training? Um, not really. So I did do Houston after Dublin. So I did, when I did the two 
235 in Dublin. I came back and ran Houston in January. It's quite a quick turnaround. I ran 234 there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came back in April to run London last, what be two years ago now, I think it was. Um, but picked up an illness, I think it was three weeks before when I went out to Vienna right. 10 and had a little niggle. So that's another good demonstration of when I should have listened to my body and perhaps not ran London yeah so um, you ran 240 that time in London yeah so yeah I shouldn't have ran that day um but training was going well until the last three weeks so yeah. it's hard to and also then, then. Uh, so you ran 235 in Dublin in October 234 in Houston in February and then 240 yeah. January 240 in London in April so three, yeah. three in six months you then yeah. take effectively six months off, but you don't because you train, but you don't race for six months and then you run 230. Yeah. So, it's, you know, you could build a hypothesis quite easily. There's the accumulation of those three blocks that got you the 230. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, I think going forward now, so long as we can stay healthy, I think we will just keep building because my time's coming down quite significantly each time. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's definitely more to come for sure just staying healthy is is the key thing yeah yeah okay cool so um uh if tony's in the us uh, one question about that so if he's in the us and you're obviously in the uk he doesn't see you he doesn't see you run how do you communicate with him how does that process work um same as we're doing now just facetime things like that um yeah just after each session i'll give him a call or give him a message and we talk if it's not messaging, we, we message most days and then we talk whenever we feel like it, whenever we want to pick up the phone, we can. So yeah, that's working really well. Yeah, I think so long as we are on top, we're both on top of it, which he, we are generally quite good at it, it's going to work. And I think especially when I was working full time, I probably wouldn't have been able to fit a session in actually with a the coach there because I was training at like, four in the morning some morning so I don't think many coaches would be too open to getting up at that time so <laughs> no it's kind of worked out well because I could go and do my training when it fitted me and then give him a call after cool and he, he says all your sessions including your easy runs so he gives you a full breakdown each week of what you he wants you to do yeah pretty much so we have always have a workout Tuesday Friday and then long run Sunday so the standard and then I have a midweek long run on the Wednesday and know that the other days are my recovery day. So he, he kind of sets a base mileage. Whereas although the recovery days are kind of up to me as well, but I'm feeding back to him all the time. Yeah. All right, cool. Good. I mean, that's very similar to the way that we work with, with runners. You know, we set a program, there's flexibility within that. Uh, some of the sessions and the specifics are important for a specific goal as you, you're working to yeah. a specific goal. Uh, and we have feedback going both ways on a regular basis you know, that you know, yeah and that relationship you have between the coach and the athlete becomes really important because it isn't just about the numbers is it it's about how you feel it's about to be able to talk to him about how yeah how I think that's almost session. more important yeah I agree I think it, you, you get much more out of an athlete and you as an athlete will get much more out of a coach the better that relationship yeah. is I think yeah I think that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand as well like a lot of people think that you do need a coach there on the sideline when really you don't because what can a coach do when you're actually running Mm. during a session they can tell you to stop if you're struggling or whatnot Mm. but if you've got that 
relationship and you know what your coach would want you to do anyway, then you should be able to make the call yourself. And especially for a marathon, because for two reasons, I think. One, because it's a huge time undertaking um, and you're running, you know, tempo runs and long runs, that, you know, an hour, two hour, two hours at a time. It's different when you're on the track, when you're working directly with an athlete on the track yeah. and you're, you're kind of in them, they're doing 200 meter repeats. Um, but the other, the other reason is you need to be strong and independent yourself to be able to cope with the race. Because when you get to the start line in a marathon, there's nothing a coach can do to help you. You've got to be ready yeah. to go yourself. Um, and it's got to be yeah, I think training. Yeah, I think training on my own as well actually makes racing a lot easier because I know that I can go out and do a 10 mile tempo faster than race pace or at race pace on my own with no one else around me. So if I go into a race and I have people pulling me along and people that I can sit behind, then that's going to be so much easier anyway. So going into a race is actually the easy part compared to the training. Definitely. And that's going to be an interesting thing about the race you've got coming up. So you've got London on the 4th of October in a biosecure bubble where you're going to be staying in a hotel remotely somewhere. No one knows where that is uh, yeah. in, the, in the few days leading up to the race. Uh, you're then going to sit in a coach, you know, away from people traveling to the event. You're then going to run the event, which is 19 laps of St. James's Park. Is yeah. 19? Yeah. Uh, at 7.15 in the morning and no, there'll be no spectators because they're putting massive boards up to stop people coming to watch. So it's going yeah. to so be a slightly strange experience, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be odd. I'm really looking forward to it though. I actually really like the idea of laps. I've did a lot of my training at a res near my house, which is 800 meter loop around the reservoir. So I'm so used to running laps. I do 20 mile runs around a half mile loop. So that's what 40 laps so wow. I'm looking forward to the lap part of it and having people to run with even though there's not going to be anyone there which I think yeah we will miss the atmosphere of what a race brings but at the same time just having other athletes to race against that's gonna be so good especially after so long off of racing sure yeah and also it's um it's an opportunity for you to lay down an Olympic qualifying time isn't it which is what you're trying yeah. to achieve yes definitely that's 2:29:30. you need to run to get a qualifying time it doesn't qualify yeah. you for the olympics you don't get selected for the olympics but it puts you in the position where you might be yeah so it just puts the time down there yeah so yeah um but you're not alone in wanting to do that are you there's this is a whole bunch no. of, <laughs> a whole bunch of you who are running so uh as it stands there are four women who have currently got the qualifying time which is charlotte yeah uh just Piersecki, Steph Twell and Steph Davis. Yeah. Um, and then there's, uh, and Steph Twell is the only one of those who is running in this race. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. And then uh, Lily Partridge, uh, Tracy Barlow, Tish Jones, Helen Davies, and the other one is Naomi Mitchell, who is the other British woman running, in, on, as well as yourself, yeah. obviously. So that's going to be a good race because you're all trying to achieve the same thing. Yeah. Um, you're all sort of going to be competing with one another, but equally at this race, it, it's not the trials race, so it doesn't matter who comes first and who comes who doesn't. Yeah. So I think, well, hopefully we'll even be able to work together, even yeah. though we're racing each other. We might even be able to get into a group and work together, and hopefully all get the standard. Yeah. Which would be amazing because then that sets up a, a, a brilliant trial race at some stage in 2021. Exactly, yeah. Where yeah. and how and when, who knows? Because obviously London's yeah. not ha happening till October, so who knows when that's going to happen. But you, all you can do now is just uh, is 
achieve what you need to achieve to get to that position yeah yeah so yeah not long now so all hard work's done so yeah just and kind of isolating as well trying to stay as safe as i can on the covid's front too yeah sure and you and you would normally do that anyway during taper wouldn't you try and make sure you're not yeah always more careful yeah yeah um, so how, how has the preparation gone? How's training been since, um, and also through lockdown. So obviously you were getting ready for London, uh, in the spring, yeah. which got canceled completely. How, how's that process played out? Uh, it's been a very different preparation this year. It's been tough at times, partly because of lockdown and obviously moving was kind of a big thing for me as well. And then London getting canceled, which is, essentially what I moved for at the time so everything's just been pushed back I did pick up a slight injury during lockdown which was hard because I couldn't see anyone because I couldn't see physios or anything because of covid so it was more virtual diagnosis which we think at the time was a misdiagnosis now looking back as we think it was tendonitis but I got diagnosed with a stress fracture so perhaps not doing the correct rehab and whatnot but we weren't too bothered because we had a well we made a gym in our garage so I was able to keep training I know that cross training works for me so yeah kept that up I was doing three or four hours on the bike each day so yeah so it's been fine and once I was back running it was better again because I was able to get out on the new trails and explore the new area so it's been really good and I think having my partner there he'd do all my 20 mile runs with me and so I could practice drinks and gels, which was always something that I struggled with previously. So I was able to work on weaknesses as that is a big weakness of my marathon running. So yeah, we've, it's been fine. We've been getting through. That's one of the interesting things about this race, isn't it? Because your the drinks and fueling is going to be way more controllable than in, than in a normal road race, because there's going to be, I guess, one, maybe two areas where you're going to be able to pick up drinks, but you're going to, have to pick it up every, was it every two kilometers or so? So, yeah so I think that's going to go in my favour too because that's something I've struggled with with marathons in the past was this time round I've had the practice on my long runs and then going into the race I think perhaps it's going to be slightly easier with it being laps and hmm. having the tables right there on the course knowing exactly where they are yeah exactly and if you miss one one on one lap it's not the end of the world um, no because you know that you go past it on the next lap too yeah. so no I think it's it's good yeah cool um and what in terms of the race itself and how that's all going to play out is there some any anything that, that at this point is bothering you or are you at the, this moment in time just purely thinking about what's going to go right the positives really thinking about how you're going to succeed on the day yeah i don't think anything's really bothering me like it's so controlled it's such a controlled environment as well so it's almost like there's less things that could go wrong it's yeah, so there's not really anything that you can worry about at this point. And I think worrying just, it won't, it's not going to help performance. So yeah, just being positive right now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's nothing, you know, you've got the training in the bank, you've done, you've done all the hard work, you've got blocks of training behind you. Uh, you've got lots of people who want you to succeed. You know, you can, you can run at this level and you can run well. You know, what have you got to lose? Exactly. Yeah. So just looking forward to it. I can't wait to just get out there. I know it's mad, isn't it? So I guess in the next ten days you're going to be. Do you suffer from the uh, the taper meltdowns that lots of people do, where your body is so used to training hard and it's now not training hard, and you've got all this pent up energy that 
and a little bit of anxiety potentially about the race that is starting to drive you a little bit crazy do you suffer from from any of that yeah i do a bit i think this time around perhaps it's going to be even harder again because normally i just taper but i have so much else going on in life that i'm kind of occupied anyway because of work and i have a horse as well so that's always kept me occupied but after the dublin last year i got kicked by a horse i think it was like the wednesday before the race which is on sunday so this time i've kind of said like not doing anything that could cause anything like that and working less hours so i think this time it's going to be harder yeah because you've got yeah, less, we'll less distractions but equally you haven't got the stress of getting kicked by a horse to worry about no exactly so yeah we'll see maybe in a few days i'll have a different answer but <laughs> Okay, cool. And we get more into the paper. Well, yeah, we'll see. But um, I'm sure you'll I'm sure you'll be fine. You've been through it before now. You've done, you know, you've done enough of them yeah, to know. I think we know what to expect now. So if I do feel it, I just know what it is. Exactly. That's the key. Is you know what to expect. It doesn't always change the mood, however, but it does mean you know that <laughs> no. you know, this is sort of normal. Um, but anyway. Um so okay, great. So I think we'll leave it there. I think um best of luck. I think you uh Think you're going to do really well i think the whole setup is, like, like you say really suits you and it'd be really interesting to see how you get on against the other british girls and also some of the other high quality athletes that are in that field because that's the other fun thing about it isn't it you're in a field of of some of the best marathon runners in the world yeah i think it'd be yeah there's going to be a lot of other girls that the brits can really race against because there's a lot of like 226 228 girls in which are all going to be around the olympic standard that we're chasing so yeah it'll be a good good race cool well thanks very much for joining joining me and joining us and uh and have a good race and i'll speak, speak to you soon thank you so there we have it that was natasha and i think it was really interesting talking to natasha and hearing about how she's had to fit running in and around her work across a good period of time where she's been training for a marathon also how her coach helped support her in that which I think is really interesting and a, and a real testament to how hard it is for elite marathoners of a certain level to be able to compete um, against professionals and, and what she has to do and how she has to commit to do that. Uh, I also think that it's interesting to hear about how she showed promise as a junior and is only really now fulfilling that over the marathon distance. She had a period of potentially where she overtrained in the middle, where she was pushed to an uncomfortable level. And now is really discovering her, perhaps her true calling as an athlete. And I think that happens to quite a lot of us. I think that we go through dips in the way that we perform, not just as athletes, but as, as humans. And I think we start off, you know, potentially showing some promise for something that then gets eroded along the way. Our confidence might get eroded. And it's only later in life that we come back and discover what we're actually capable of. And I think that happens to people, um, as we see that happening to people in running um, and I think it's about and that's what the marathon can be about it's about pushing to see what you're capable of and, and you just don't know until you get started and get into it how good you can possibly be and in most cases that's what it is all about it is about being the best version of yourself and trying to see what you are capable of um, that's not what's going on for Natasha and Josh right now however they are pushing themselves against others they are racing other people in a really exciting format of a race that's coming up at the weekend so I hope you enjoyed the recording and I hope you're looking forward to the race and I hope you enjoy watching the race and of course if you're running the virtual London Marathon on Sunday then good luck it promises to be quite a festival of 
uh, of remoteness actually and social media is going to play an important role in that I'm sure and I'm sure we'll see plenty of posts around people's efforts of running 26.2 miles on their own which will be which will be fantastic to see so thanks for joining us and I hope to speak to you again soon take care planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with quince go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365 day returns